We never know where life will lead us or what may hinder us along the way. But while every day can feel like one big question mark, it doesn't have to. With the right insights, strategies, and solutions from Western and Southern Financial Group, together we can look ahead to leave the unknown behind. Ready to get into it? Yeah, yeah. All right. We're going team by team. I would be very careful by slinging stuff. Am I going to get sued? Is that legal on this? I like football, like football season, all the things that go with it. Welcome in to the PFF NFL podcast. Steve Palazzola here with Sam Monson. Well, kind of here. We're both on the show. And uh, it's our midweek show. We're back on Wednesdays. We're not necessarily live at noon today because of our interview, but we're back on Wednesdays, our midweek show. It's going to be driven by you, the listeners, with our uh, mailbag, and we're hoping to have some some great guests here. Uh, Jordan Rodrigue from The Athletic, Rams reporter. She's going to be on here later today to talk a little bit of Rams and help us preview Thursday Night Football Sam, how you doing, man? I'm good. And you, you're you in the basement, so we're not going to be dealing with, you know, 1997 dial-up internet today. We're actually going to be able to hear what you say. You're not going to yes. be dropping out. You're not going to have to run to a different room. We're, we're you know, we're high technological advancements here. I'm a professional. Very <laughs> yes. professional. Going to have outstanding audio from uh, from parents' basements better than my, uh, my bedroom, apparently. Beautiful. Beautiful. Old bedroom. So, uh, yeah, we're going to have some fun today. Again, the midweek show, it's kind of open-ended, right? We've got the Monday review show, the Thursday preview show, but Wednesday, open-ended. Sam likes to dive into the mailbag, answer some questions, and again, we'll have uh, Jordan Rodriguez here a little bit later on. Do you have any updates, Sam, on where we're going to be throwing your uh, up to 60 miles an hour pitch here no i haven't actually uh i'm gonna must ask self about it because david so far our, our pr guru over here is reaching out to not just the reds but like everybody you know the reds xavier uc red Sox. Uh, no 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 everybody local you know i don't oh, okay. think this is a i don't think this is a big travel kind of thing but anyway he said he was going to reach out to them all i haven't actually touched base back with him to check how they how they went you know whether they all told him immediately to get bent or whether any of these are actually going to go anywhere um, so I shall check, but you know, as soon as we can, we will be doing this NFL podcast at PFF.com is the email to send us questions and generally anything that we can use as a topic for this Wednesday show. But the other fun thing is we get, you know, Monday night football review and autopsy out of this show as well. And boy, was there some stuff to talk about after this Monday night, some craziness to talk about. So let's start with this. Uh, when did you start the phrase Gino Curious? I mean, that was was that just the preview show last week? Yeah, I think so. I'd been it the the concept had been floating around my brain since the preseason, but I don't think I lent voice to it until that preview show. So Gino Smith coming off uh first off, Seahawks win 17 to 16 in the Russell Wilson return at Seattle. A ridiculous I guess you call it drama at the end, but it was uh curious to say the least. Uh, but Geno Smith has a fantastic game. The Seahawks get up early. He goes 23 of 28 for 195 yards, two touchdowns, PFF passing grade of 78. A, a, just a good, efficient Geno Smith game. 
You had Russell Wilson, a couple big plays in there, but he finishes 29 of 42. This was kind of a let Russ cook game, Sam, right? We're putting the ball in his hands and letting him chuck it around, and the Broncos only come away with 16 points. So there's, you know, there's some uh, maybe some answers there to the letting Russ cook. But, of course, everybody's talking about the end of the game, the Denver Broncos settling for a 64-yard field goal down one after letting the clock just essentially burn and putting themselves in a difficult position. So a lot to unpack here in the Monday Night Football Review. Yeah, I mean, the end of game clock management, I think, was horrendous. Um, And the funny thing is, if you're watching on the Manning cast, which I only realized was happening at halftime, I'd suffered through the first half of the regular broadcast until I saw somebody bring up the name Manning on Twitter. I was like, oh, no, I'm missing the Mannings. So tune back (laughs) into the proper broadcast, the Mannings. And if you're watching that, you know, they're, they're talking through Shannon Sharp is on at this point. And they're, they're, it's very Denver-focused, right? Peyton Manning, obviously former Broncos quarterback, Shannon Sharp. By the way, former, friend, friend of the show, Shannon Sharp. True. Former Broncos tight end, both all-time greats. And they're you know, talking about this from a, you know, is Russ going to get this done? How do we uh, execute this drive and get the win type of standpoint? And, you know, they, they, they start moving the ball. They're doing it reasonably well. Poor old Jerry Judy, horrible drop after the really nice play that he made earlier in the game. Um, and then, you know, what was it, third and 14, third and 15, something like that. They dump one off to Javante Williams, who busts a couple of tackles, gets them into fourth and five, right? And it's like, all right, fourth and five, that's, that's now manageable. That's literally what Shannon Sharp said. That's, that's doable, fourth and five. And then there was... You know, Peyton Manning immediately is like, I, I take a time out here. Let's talk about this one. We'll figure out what we're going to call for the really important fourth and five play. And then it became clear that they're not doing that. They're not calling time out. They're letting the clock run. They're what's going on. And then eventually they let it run all the way down, take the time out. And it becomes clear they're going to kick the field goal rather than attempt the fourth and five. And at the end of this, you know, there's the analytics models and the do you go for it? Do you kick? And a lot of these models were saying, well, it was basically a coin flip to kick or to go for it at that point. But they were generally taking it from the standpoint of after you've bled all the time off the clock. Like, yeah, once you've, once you've left all the time go off the clock, then it's a coin flip. But the point is Manning yeah, run is... run the model with a minute. Manning is calling timeout the second Javante Williams goes down. And there's a video out there from, you know, Omaha Productions that's Manning. They counted him up. Manning called for timeout 62 times in the minute that it took them to bleed the clock and get to that fourth down play. Yeah. Yeah. That's why when you're looking at the, the analytics models and all that stuff, yeah, they're, they're based off whatever that current time is, but obviously letting the clock bleed uh, as the Broncos did was not ideal. Um, let's, let's just talk Russell Wilson and the Broncos at this, at, at this point, then what were your initial impressions of Russ? Because, uh, you have a 67-yard touchdown in there by your guy, Jerry Judy. Uh, Judy is essentially wide open. Russ actually underthrows it a little bit. I don't love the way Jet Judy catches at the catch point all the time, but he did a nice job there, played tough through the catch point, and then just runs away from the defense, 67-yarder. So that was outstanding. You take out that play, not that you can statistically, but you take out that play. It was a lot of underneath stuff from Russell Wilson. It was a lot of the quick passing game. It was a lot of what people described when they said for years, say, hey, let Russ cook. Let's replace the running game with Russell Wilson just uh, putting the ball in his hands and throwing the ball around. But this was not not even close to the best Russell Wilson game we've seen. He was he was below average uh, from a PFF grading standpoint. So 
what were your initial impressions of this offense? Because that was one of our biggest questions this season, you know, coming into it. Yeah, I didn't think Russ looked good at all. And I think the offense looked the same as it does in Seattle when he's there, which is to say, you know, you're going to have to work around how Russ plays the game. You're not going to be able to just plug him into whatever offense you want to run and say, this is what you need to do. He's going to play the game the way he plays the game, and you have to live with the good and the bad end of that. And in this game, it was predominantly the bad end. But we did see late in the game when he started executing that drive that there is a world and where, where Russ can just drop back and pick up those uh, plays time and time again, albeit aided by a defense that's obviously playing to limit that. I, I do wonder how the narrative would have changed if, you know, if they hadn't decided to bleed off the clock, if they'd let him go for the fourth down. I think he's like 50-50 on fourth and five or less in his NFL career or something like that. Um, you know, if he'd picked that up, if he'd gone down the field, if they'd ended up sneaking out a win, would how would the narrative be at that point? Would we be saying, all right, it wasn't always pretty, but Russ comes into Seattle, gets a tough win on the road, and Denver's a much better team, and, you know, clutch at the end, everything's good in Denver. But because it didn't happen, it's like, all right, this looked terrible. They got outplayed by Geno Smith. Nathaniel Hackett made a balls of his first significant, you know, game management type of situation, like the sky is falling. I mean, the other part, too, Russ's best throw of the game, his, uh, his lone big-time throw by our grading, was uh, in the fourth quarter, just uh, just falls incomplete in the end zone. Broncos were down 17-13 to 13 at the time, end up settling for a field goal to get to 17-16, which was the eventual final. Um, so, yeah, you're a fine line between maybe the narrative switching, but I, I still think high-level, uh, you know, not again, not the best Russ game. Uh, he didn't run the ball until the very end, right? The very last drive was the first time he actually ran uh so he was not that he wasn't scrambling around and doing some of his old school type of stuff but uh was mostly you know chucking it around from the pocket um but just wasn't great overall i don't think for the for the broncos offense meanwhile the seahawks you know playing inspired playing great geno smith not missing a whole lot of throws and and it was his first you know avoiding a sack and getting the ball out for a big play geno smith had one of the best games this week. Did Did you see the video of Nathaniel Hackett uh, essentially coming clean and saying, "Yeah, look, in hindsight, we should have we should have gone for it." Um, and so he said that was obviously the headline. It's like, yeah, if obviously under the guise of because we missed it, right? That's where it went off the rails a little bit. Like his initial answer was, "Yeah, obviously we should have gone for it. If we don't, you know, do it over again, you would." But his explanation was like because we missed the field goal. It's like all right, you know, it doesn't it kind of it doesn't feel like you've quite got the idea of why you should have gone for it. You know, it's it's more complicated than that. I'm I was curious about whether you think it's a good thing or a bad thing that he essentially came out with the mea culpa and was you know hey do we or he came out and said yeah obviously we should have gone for it. It didn't go our way, and, you know, if I had to do it over again, we would. Is that a good thing, or should he just sort of keep quiet about that and say, hey, we made the call, didn't go our way, we we move yeah. on? I think it's a good thing. I, I think it is. Um, <clears throat> where it would be bad is, look, they just looked unprepared. I mean, it looked like Nathaniel Hackett, who has been an offensive play caller, he calls plays. It's what he, that's what he does. In, in a lot of times when you take – an offensive coordinator or whenever a guy's a first-time head coach it's almost like what is the new list of stuff 
that you need to practice, that you need to consider, that you need to be thinking about. And it, it felt like game management just they, they, like they didn't get to it yet at that. You know, they just didn't get to late game situations. I know they practiced it. I know you always practice that stuff, but there is something about the heat of the moment. Like you are on the sideline. You are there. It, the game is fast, right? It is easy to watch on TV. It is tough to be in the game making quick decisions with clock management and all that stuff, unless you're completely prepared for it. And you do prepare for that during the week, both during practice and I know a lot of coaches, they sit down with their game management people and, and they practice this stuff, just like you practice anything else. And it just felt like the Broncos weren't prepared for this. They just weren't prepared for when to use the timeouts. And then coming out of that, just, just the simple consideration of weighing a fourth and five versus a 64-yard field goal in Seattle, right? Not in a dome, not in not in altitude, a 64-yard field goal versus fourth and five. It just felt like a lack of preparation. So I think it's bad that he admit, whether he admitted it or not, the bad preparation was there, right? Yeah. It was there. But the fact that he admitted it does make me think, you know, he's acknowledging, hey, we weren't ready for that. We will be next time. So yeah. I think that is a good thing, ultimately. I, I do think it's probably a good thing that he at least acknowledged, you know, that he acknowledges it and that I'm okay with him articulating it publicly. I do wish that the articulation publicly hadn't included more thought process behind it that didn't sound great. You know, the idea of uh, it's just because we missed the field goal. And also, he sort of seemed to suggest that when they got like when Javante Williams got the big play or got sort of ten yards type of thing, it almost surprised them and changed the you know changed the the thought process, which again doesn't seem great. Um, but the other I mean, element, we, Sam, we create some of these game management tools for teams for our for our team clients, where you go into the set of downs and you look at it and it says uh, when do you go for it, when do you kick it, when do you do all that stuff, and you look at it on first and ten. And you say, if we get to a fourth and five, here's our decision. Fourth and eight, here's our decision. Fourth and 11, here's our decision, right? Preparing for those moments. Uh, announcers get it wrong, I think, I hope, when they say, oh, the coach is just thinking about it or whatever, right? Most of the time, they know. They know on first and 10, whether it's fourth and one, two, three, four, like we, they know what they're doing. Not necessarily the play call, but they know if we're going for it or not. And again, it just felt like the Broncos – they line up to go for it. They call the timeout. They reconsider. It, it just felt like a lack of preparation there. Yeah, and the other thing is, you know, Russell Wilson was just traded for for a pretty significant haul. You just gave him a ton of money. It, Denver committed to Russell Wilson in a way that Seattle has been criticized for not in recent years. And yeah. when it came down to it, your choice was 64-yard field goal or the dude we just paid all the money for and the giant trade who has, you know, a group of wide receivers that can, you know, the guy we want to let cook. You didn't let him cook, you know? that's You did exactly the same thing as the Seahawks would have done, which is not put the ball in Russ's hands until it's absolutely necessary. It's just that that doesn't speak well to the whole situation. No, definitely not. Especially, look, Russell Wilson's history in the fourth quarter. I'm, I'm kind of criticizing his game. PFF passing grade under 60, I think it was 57 or so. I'm, I'm criticizing Russell Wilson's game, but – he also has a history of just just getting it done in the fourth quarter because he's still very good. It's still Russell Wilson. He does have the ability uh, to make those fourth quarter comebacks to put your team in position to succeed, and especially on fourth and five, he only ran once the entire game. I feel like that's another one where he's going to say, "Okay, I'm, I'm going to get this thing done. If nobody's open, I'm going to run for it." You know, 
Um, you have to put the ball in Russell Wilson's hands there. Honestly, if it was a 54-yard field goal, I think you're having a discussion, right? Like, yeah. think about that. If it's 54 yards, and that's a that's a doable field goal. That is a makeable field goal. There is a legitimate discussion between do we go for it on fourth and five or try to kick the 54-yard or put it all on our kicker. You know, like it, there is a legit discussion there, and 64 is just crazy. I don't care how big, you know, McManus's leg is. Uh, that that's that's just a whole different world, and absolutely, they should have gone for it, put the ball in Russ's hands. Um, but then on the other side of things, you do have that impressive Geno game, and it was almost talk, like talk about Geno. I want to hear your Geno takes here, man. Well, it was different almost like Gino. it was almost like the start of the game was designed for the takes. You know, Russell Wilson wasn't playing very well. The Seahawks like came out here and just let Geno fling it around to start the game. Yeah, you know, letting Geno cook the way that they don't let Russ cook or didn't let him cook before they traded him away. Gino looked good. I mean, look, I, the the Gino curious thing. I'm not ready to buy into the idea that he's going to be amazing or he's even going to be a good, capable starter. But we've now seen a decent, you know, chunk. Obviously, preseason is preseason, but last year he looked reasonable in limited sample size. He looked good in this game. Gino Smith looks like a capable starting quarterback, which is not something I would have said was necessarily realistic you know, before this season. He was, uh, it, it is this somewhat extended stretch of good play. I, I don't think Geno Smith was great last year. Uh, he did lead that second half comeback against the Rams. He had a couple, you know, mid-level type of games. He had an excellent game against the Jacksonville Jaguars, but the totality of that was solid, right? It was a good few games for Geno Smith. And, he, and like you said, he carried it into the preseason. He's carried it into week one. So he just continues to play to play pretty good football. And it was a different, uh, somewhat different Geno Smith, right? I, he didn't take a ton of negative plays. Uh, you know, Charles Cross had a little bit of trouble in pass protection. I know, you know, yeah. he's a rookie and there's a lot of buzz about, yeah, the rookie tackles played great for the Seahawks. I think Abe Lucas played better than Charles Cross. Geno Smith making, he's never been the most creative uh, mobile, you know, scrambler or anything, but he's breaking free from a sack, getting rid of the ball for a big play. Uh, he was just making some of those, you know, off out of structure plays that you don't always see from Geno Smith. So he had some playmaking to him. Um, you know, the downfield passing attack wasn't necessarily there. I think they were protecting him, trying to get the ball out underneath and everything. But um, look, it was a good, good, efficient game for Geno Smith. Something to build on, and in an underdog environment, right? The Seahawks are playing the underdog right now, and maybe that's where where Pete Carroll's going to be at his best, right? When he's he's got his back against the wall and expectations are lower and, and Geno Smith really took to it, I think, in week one. Yeah, I mean, I, I you know, you talk all the time about just wanting more data points on specific players. I think nothing, no, nowhere does that apply more than Geno Smith right now. He, you know, he he's played before, you know, for, for an extended period of time, but you're talking years ago, like what, 2013, 14 with the Jets? Um, and even then, it was it was a roller coaster. It was inconsistent, and then he ends up with this sort of perpetual backup job. Plays a couple of games last year. They're they're decent. The the box score numbers were a little bit better than his actual performance, I think, overall. And then looks really good in preseason. Looks very good, I think, in this first game. So I'm I'm bought in. I'm I'm definitely still curious about what this Geno Smith thing is going to look like long term. The Charles Cross point is a good one because he struggled, I think, against Bradley Chubb. And who they play next week. It's the 49ers and Nick Bosa. So that's not going to get any easier for Charles Cross in the immediate to short-term future. 
Yeah, I, I don't want to get into like O line technique and everything. He just looked rushed in his sets a whole lot, and that's like the opposite of how Charles Cross usually plays. He's usually super patient, and we know he's athletic and a smooth mover. So definitely has some adjusting to do there, heading from week one into week two. But uh, look, got to give the Seahawks credit. They 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 win the home game in week one, uh, much like the much like the Bears, and I would say much like the Giants. You know, just a couple teams where expectations, I, at least for me. Expectations are low. Uh, roster expectations don't look great on paper, but anything can happen, right? In the NFL, any given week, and um, you know the Broncos. I'm I'm curious about how they bounce back here too, because I, I don't think the defense was a disaster, but Geno was picking them apart early on. Mm-hmm. And the defense, look, it's it's 17-16 game. It's not like the defense was terrible in Denver, but we mentioned the Vic Fangio factor in, in losing. Uh, a, a pretty key piece there, even though because you, you had to lose him because he was the head coach. He wasn't a great head coach, but he's a great defensive player. Want to see how this Denver defense bounces back, especially on the back end after you know giving up eighty two percent completions to Geno Smith and the Seahawks. Yeah, um, I also want to see the PFF app, Sam, much like everyone else here should. Mm-hmm. Industry leading fantasy football advice, PFF's exclusive betting dashboards, the latest premium football analysis, all in the palm of your hand. It is the PFF app. Be sure to sign up. Give us a five-star review. Give us, you get still time. Give us your Super Bowl prediction for 2022 and the final score. We'll share some of the best ones on the show here in the coming weeks. Go check out the PFF app in the App Store. Nice. Um, somebody emailed in, a guy called Derek Lush, for, you know, we asked for suggestions for uh, guests we could get on the Wednesday show. In general, guy or people that have a focus on the teams that are going to be playing on Thursday night. So we can try and kind of preview those games or at least get a pick in, something like that. And uh, Derek says, guys, have you considered popular Sunday night football commentator Chris Collinsworth as a guest for your podcast? Ah, maybe uh, probably a Bengals expert, I would ex- expect him to be, right? So when the maybe we could get that guy. What's he doing these days? I don't know. I don't know. Collinsworth. Though it does sound like he's whatever he's doing, it's a lot of talking, judging by his voice in the last game. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. I don't know if we I mean, want to add more to that slate. Apparently, he's not good. You know, sometimes it's about, um, you know, Andrew Whitworth's talked about recovery. Yeah. You know, I think maybe maybe Chris needs to find the recovery room after, you know, he, he, he announces Thursday night football. He's got to bounce back. Well, you on, heard. Uh, we call it two days. He was on two days rest, Sam. It's tough yeah. to bounce back on two days of rest for Sunday night football. Three days of rest. I mean. Right? Two, day, no, two days. Two days. You gotta get to the recovery room. Chris. You heard Whitworth, though. The Bengals don't have one. You know, he didn't know what a recovery room was until he got to L.A. Yeah. So Chris does his two shows, and then he's like, I, "What? What's a recovery? There's no recovery room in Cincinnati. The office. Well, we gotta get one, one at, the, at the offices. PFF offices need a recovery room for yeah. Chris and his voice. Ooh, All right, we got a couple emails here before uh, Jordan joins the show here, and we talk a little bit of Rams. Yeah, uh, let's hit this. Let's hit the second one first, if that makes any sense. Uh, somebody, who's this guy? Austin, a guy called Austin, emailed in. He said, "Hi, Sam and Steve. I wanted to know uh, why, when we look at players, we assume they cannot change their physical ability. There's a few things that clearly you can't change: height, arm length, etc. However," Many other aspects, such as speed, strength, weight, and others, can change in players. It seems like this is always ignored when evaluating players, or am I wrong about this? I understand that a player who runs a 4.840 isn't going to run a 4.3 anytime soon. However, I read a book called Peak by Anders Ericsson. What Anders basically says is that any person can gain any skill with what he calls deliberate practice. 
Examples include, you know, Tiger Woods, Michael Jordan, Bryson DeChambeau, all putting on like significant strength and bulk during their careers. I guess the question then is why not get an accurate quarterback and add strength to his arm? Get the brains and the quick decision making and then put the cannon on them later. There was a quote about how much Joe Burrow gained after he got hurt and came back. Josh Allen didn't wake up one day throwing 70 yards. He trained for it. I understand we can't predict which players will work hard to get those gains, but in some circumstances, doesn't it make sense to get the talent and the football knowledge and then develop them later? Thanks. Love the show. Austin. Okay. So there's some good questions here, man. I think it's, I think it's two different things though. You're talking skills, but when you're talking the deliberate practice thing, the Tiger Woods and Michael Jordans of the world and Tom Brady in, in that world, right? Those guys are wired different mentally. They are wired to a point where they they want to be the best. And I, I, I want to say this, too. Just because they've done it, just because Tiger, Jordan, and Tom Brady have become the best, doesn't mean that everybody that has that mentality will become the best either, right? It's, it's also just not an easy thing to do. We've heard stories all the time, like, um, was it uh, I Davis Webb a couple of years ago? I mean, people were describing Davis Webb like he was Tom Brady, like the dude never wants to leave the film room and he wants to be the best ever. And you hear that a lot about quarterbacks that Dak wants to be the best he could ever be. Russ said he wants to be the best quarterback of all time. A lot of people say it and maybe they even acted out a little bit, but executing it is still difficult. But I think the guys that have done it, that is a mental, uh, that is the mental ability, the, the, the drive. I think the idea of do you get a guy that's accurate first and build arm strength? I think there's elements to that. You can throw harder. I'll tell you my baseball story in a second. But what are your thoughts on this on this email here, Sam? Um, my initial thought is I think it's underselling the baseline that NFL players are already at. You know, it's one thing to sort of say, you know, you look at me or you in our current state of lethargy and inaction and. Uh, the sedentary lifestyle and say, all right, I can get this guy and spend three months getting him into shape, working on a specific element, and we can change that from night and day. I mean, your baseball pitch is a perfect example, right? You throw 75 right now, and we know for a fact that at your peak, you were, what, 95? So there's 20 yep. miles an hour in your arm in addition to what you have right now. But I'll tell you the story of how I got there too, right? Because and here's where I would agree with this a little bit. When I was coming out of college, I was throwing high 80s, just about touching 90. I had a guy tell me, hey, you're a high 80s guy. Just just learn how to pitch high 80s. And I said, no way, man. There's more in there. I know I can train better. I know that I can improve my mechanics. And I worked hard to go from a high 80s to a low 90s pitcher, sure. from 90 to 94. Now, the analyst in me would say, it doesn't really matter. You went from non-prospect from a yeah. major league standpoint to basically a non-prospect, right? <laughs> so even though I did make great improvements because my baseline was lower than the average major league pitcher, it didn't really matter. Whereas there are guys who throw 99 and then they drop down to 94 and they're still above the major league average, right? So part of that doesn't matter because the baseline is lower. I think that's a little bit of what you're trying to say. Well, the point I'm trying to make is that I think the higher up you go in terms of level, the smaller that margin exists to just go and work at it and be better, right? Because you assume that an, an NFL player right now, pick a random one, right? That guy is not in the current state that we're in, i.e. sitting on the couch doing, you know, 
analytics are sitting in the podcast chair talking about it. They're already working. You know, they're already at whatever 90, 95% of their capacity is going to be. You're only talking about, can I get from 95 to 100? With you and me, we're talking about, can I get to like, from like 45% to 80? And that's a giant leap forward in, in whatever area we're working on. So I just don't think there's that kind of giant leap to be had for most of these guys. And then the other thing I think it, cha- it, it undersells is like the sheer difference in physical freakish ability between some of these guys. Like as much as um, who's the – like pick your favorite noodle-armed quarterback, right? No matter how much that dude – Kellen Moore. There you go. No matter how much Kellen Moore goes in there and works on various shoulder muscles and you know biomechanics and strength training, he's never going to be Josh Allen. It's never going to happen. He could spend the next six years of his life doing nothing but working on arm strength. He's not going to have Josh Allen's ability. He just doesn't because he's ways. He's just he doesn't have the capacity. So I think there's a huge element of that that you know some of these guys are simply not in the same physical world as some of these other players and. You know, as much as you kind of look at some of these guys and say, yeah, can you improve arm strength? Absolutely. Can you get it from where it is to, like, something insane? Probably not. Um, And then the third element is I do think teams look at this stuff. Like, teams are not looking at prospects and saying that is who he is from now and forever. They're talking about frame. You know, can he add muscle? Can he add size? Can he add strength or speed? You know, they're, they're looking at these types of things and projecting what is possible um, already. It just, I think, is a smaller percentage than people probably think it is. Yeah, most scouts are putting a what-will-he-be grade on a player. They're looking at, you know, Joe College Senior right now and saying, what's he going to be in the league? How do I project him into the league? Um, and, and knowing all that background information, right? If he came from, say, Alabama's workout program, and he's got a filled out frame. Okay, maybe he can't add. If he's at, you know, whatever Steve State University with no program, great program, maybe we can add weight to this guy. Right. So they are doing a lot of that work and trying to project. Um, I will say I've had this thought process before. I think Mac Jones is an interesting one, right? Hmm. He is a quick processor, does not have a cannon for an arm. It's good enough for the NFL level. Uh, Tom Brady's added zip, I think, since coming into the NFL. Yeah. Drew Brees added a little bit, I think, in the NFL. Uh, does the processing and quick decision-making, does that does that give you a nice high baseline where you can start adding just a little bit more velocity as you go? And it doesn't mean Mac Jones becomes Josh Allen. It just means he's so good at this other stuff um, that you should consider it. Okay, well, he'll get better from an arm strength standpoint and, be, and just improve as a player. I think he'll be an interesting use case. As we go forward, Jones, I think, is a great example of somebody who obviously had the capacity to get physically more impressive than he was. Remember, like dad bought Jones, right? He was being he was being mocked for the kind of pudgy state of his physique before the draft. And despite that, he still ran like a four eight. Like he's not a, a pitiful athlete. His arm was concerning to some, but to me was always good enough to play in the NFL. So if you take a guy who has a you know, whatever we want to call this, an unimpressive physique, but has a viable NFL arm and can run a 4-8. That, to me, suggests, well, what if we transform the, the, the unimpressive physique into an impressive physique? What does that do to the rest of that stuff? I would imagine it makes it better. And I, I would say that, you know, just from looking at that, Mac Jones would be an obvious candidate to have the kind of, 
you know, Joe Burrow improvement in arm strength or even the Aaron Rodgers improvement in arm strength from what he was when he came into the NFL to the guy he became. Does it mean he's going to get there? No. Does it mean he'll end up with a Josh Allen, Patrick Mahomes kind of arm? Also no. But I think he specifically is a player for whom that would make obvious sense. The, the one th- last thing I'll say is I think the NFL is just scratching the surface on legitimate off-season player development yeah. and, and things like OL masterminds with Duke Manyweather, things like speed training, um, Tom House or whoever's working with quarterbacks and all that stuff. I think that stuff is real. And again, it doesn't mean you're going to go from a terrible player to a pro bowler necessarily, but I think now, not to use the baseball comparison again, I think baseball is another eight to 10 years ahead of this, which is why guys are throwing a hundred miles an hour more than ever and 95 more than ever, ever. So, um, yeah, I would just say that is, that is something that they have just scratched the surface and there's still more there. And then you just have to figure out what's, you know, what's your starting point for those guys and what can you expect as far as them getting better? The NFL's opening week was action-packed, and it's just getting started. Get ready for week two of touchdowns, big plays, and even bigger wins with DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NFL. This week, new customers can bet just $5 on any football game and get $200 in free bets instantly. You want more action? Well, everyone can experience the thrill of DraftKings' early win promotion. It's simple. This Sunday, bet on any NFL team to win, and if your team leads by 10 at any point during the game, you get paid instantly, even if your team loses. So download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now. Use promo code PFF to get $200 in free bets instantly when you place a bet of $5 on any football game. That's code PFF, only at DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NFL. Minimum age and eligibility restrictions apply. See description for details. Look at that. Shortened uh, terms and conditions, and you nail it. Smooth. Stick the landing. Smooth. Job one. It's better than the daily the other um, day. The last point I would make with that stuff is that as much as if you're, a, you know, Mac Jones, if Mac Jones goes and does that in an offseason and improves his gains and blah, 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 there's only gain to be had if you're doing it and somebody else isn't. You know what I mean? Like if that becomes a thing that is genuinely capable of improving everybody's physical tools, like what if Josh Allen goes away and starts doing that? What if Patrick Mahomes decides to spend an offseason cooking up his physique and getting to the point where his arm is 25% stronger than it was? Like, all of a sudden, your whatever gain you you gain didn't move you forward relative to everybody else. So while I, again, I think it is something that exists. While you're doing that, you're not doing something else. So Joe Burrow, the dude wrecked his knee. He had time to rehab and do everything else. Like that's all he was doing. He wasn't able to do football activities. For other guys, they got a day job. All right. So we've got uh, Jordan Rodriguez here from the Athletic. Does great work for the Rams. So I'm going to pass it over to Sam. Um, I, I, you have to ask her one question for me, Sam. Can she get Bobby Wagner for us? Maybe <laughs> she can be the link to get Bobby Wagner. We Maybe. still have the interview prepped and ready still sitting for there. Bobby Wagner. Let me know if she can uh, pull that off for us. Yeah. There is a lot of elements in that interview, though, just looking over it now that don't necessarily uh, don't necessarily still apply now that he plays for a completely different team. We're going to read it verbatim and just say, Bobby, what do you think? Uh-huh. All right. I'll see you on the other side. Let's, right, uh, let's bring Jordan in. Okay, welcome in Jordan Rodrigue from The Athletic, uh, beat reporter for the Los Angeles Rams and author of some really cool stuff over the last couple of years. In particular, like you've done some really good work on, you know, the Rams philosophy and the, the FM picks approach and all this kind of stuff and, and how they use data and analytics. So you're a, a cool person to talk to about all this stuff. Thanks for joining us. 
Wow. Thank you so much for having me. And thanks for bringing that up. That, that made my morning. I feel like I was, uh, you know, it, it's that feeling when some, one of your friends says, Hey, I remember when you discovered that cool band, you know, before <laughs> everyone else did. So <laughs> it's a good feeling. So I guess the first question I need to ask is what was your biggest takeaway from that week one beat down? Is that, is that too uh, harsh a description of what happened? Yeah, I think you could see it from my face just now that that recoil, right? Um, yeah, that was gnarly, man. That was uh, pretty much an all around implosion, I think, in many of the facets that they wanted to to come out of the gate swinging on um, the run game, the diversity and the dimension in the pass game, the protection, um, you know, containing Josh and and sort of keeping the integrity of some of the things they do in their defense. So all around loss. Um, I'm not too worried about it at the moment. Uh, with the Falcons coming up, you know, there's a potential to get very, very worried if things go yeah. sideways. But I think that uh, I think that this is a group that problem solves really well. So for me, I don't really have a, a huge concern that they don't put things together down the stretch. So the Rams are one of these teams that has essentially determined preseason as a waste of everybody's time. You know, not, they don't just keep the starters off the field, but like the top 30 guys in the roster don't go anywhere near the field on, on, in preseason. Um so obviously after a week one loss like that, there's a lot of people going, whoa, is, is this causing an effect here? Is, is losing the preseason reps, is that a really important thing? My first question is, you know, as someone that's there all the time, what does their training camp look like? Because when we did our training camp tour stuff, there, there are a couple of teams out there that treat training camp very differently and it's much more physical and there's contact, there's tackling. The Steelers are one. The Saints did it a lot when we were there. Are the Rams a team that kind of makes up for the lack of preseason reps with training camp or do they, they essentially treat the entirety of the preseason process as, you know, just an install thing we get through and then real football is real football? So I'll use an example from like in a vacuum first, because their off season, their preseason this year was different considering the nature of their season last year and how extended it was. So they had to do different things in terms of player health and their sports science department um, has, I, I always joke, they have it down to the molecule on what they're tracking on these guys often. So um, in a vacuum, they do have a highly competitive training camp period, and they run these best on best periods often that they call the Mamba period, um, you know, it, it, as you know, Los Angeles and, and all of that. And, and they um, they go highly, highly competitive. And at times it's scripted and at times it's purely go call a live game, play football. And in, especially when they were installing their defense, their new defense with Brandon Staley in 2020, they started implementing those things. And then also a live scout team, which is um, a little bit different, I think, than the traditional sort of scout that that would be run normally. So that continues all throughout the year. And so that was, they're very highly efficient, um, definitely very, very calculated with the maximum output that are getting on their reps. And that's something that's been true for the last several off seasons. And, you know, that's why Sean McVay has proudly until this year been five, five and one in, in openers without having played any of his starters or key role players in the preseason. And then also, you know, the Rams are, have been one of the, the teams in the top five year over year, according to football outsiders metrics uh, in lack of games lost to injury. So I think that combination is more what they're looking at here, less so what's going to happen in week one. Um, I think this year you also see a little bit of differences in terms of you know, super, super long uh, or super, super short off season, really abnormally long regular season that included, you know, their Super Bowl run, 
uh, Matthew Stafford on a, a very, very adjusted plan in terms of his onboarding period, not throwing through the OTAs, um, really live throwing fully through those those uh, joint practices that that I saw you guys at in Cincinnati. And so that was that was different. That was adjusted. Um, new offensive line. So I think there's some variables that went into probably this week one loss that do have some contribution from an adjusted preseason. But in terms of their overall big picture, they're really not looking at performance in week one as relative to the the preseason at all. Yeah, and I know you made that point on Twitter as well that, you know, we should be looking at the long game here as well. And, I mean, even if it was cause and effect, you know, even if they were essentially losing a game, you know, week one, even if they were increasing the chances that they would lose a week one game by the way they treat preseason, you could definitely argue that it's worth it, right? If it's if it's actually producing what you're talking about in terms of a cleaner injury slate than everybody else, if it's giving them more health and durability from more of their players late in the season, it's contributing to more wins over a 17-game schedule, which is the more important thing. I mean, week one is uh, every game is important, but if you lose one to gain two more, it's a win. Yeah, and I think it's relativity too, right? You guys do such great work at PFF and um, shout out to a lot of your your colleagues who have helped me out and helped me learn lots of things about some of the data side of things. And and really understanding that appreciation that it's about relativity. If the Rams quantify based on their body of data, that again, tracking like, as I joke, but not really by the molecule here, <laughs> if they're quantifying that the risk is, uh, is, is greater than even a marginal benefit of doing things differently, um, then they're going to stay on, on whatever course they deem fit based on what they're seeing and what they're getting from that data. So it's all relative uh, by team, but in terms of the Rams process, I don't, I don't see that changing. Um, I see probably they don't, they would, wouldn't want another off season in terms of, you know, quarterback management in the way that they have. And I don't think Matthew would want that either. Um, but in terms of, of kind of what they experienced, I think you have to look at the the larger pool of work than, and their own sort of internal process and how they're quantifying things. Um, relative to like maybe the larger conversation that's happening right now. Yeah, let's let's review quickly the Matthew Stafford thing because I think a lot of people just sort of heard, you know, hey, Matthew Stafford's got an elbow injury and there's just a, a vagueness around that. What is what does that actually meant for his offseason? Because like he's barely he's barely done anything in terms of throwing. Like he's, he was shut down for an extended period of time. What did that look like? Yeah, um, I'm so glad you asked, by the way, <laughs> because I think pieces of this get like repackaged out at times. And I think it's, again, you know, not to, to bang the drum here, but we have to look at this whole thing as a whole instead of just parts of it. And with this, you know, this is an ongoing issue described to me uh, by, by a couple of sources as something similar to tendonitis. Um, this has been something the Rams knew was an issue last year. They managed it last year. Um, Matthew Stafford didn't miss any practice reps or game reps. Um, they managed it through the year. They understood probably about the time they recognized that their season was going to continue well into you know January, February, that they were going to have to start developing a different management plan for the offseason. In March, he had a non-surgical procedure and what was described to me at the time as an anti-inflammatory shot in that arm. And then from then on, it was all about sticking to the plan. So no throwing in OTAs, onload deload periods, which look like uh, in, in training camp, which look like some days he's throwing individuals, some days he's totally shut down, some days he's throwing individuals and part of team period, seven on seven, 
some days, you know, again, then you're back to a deload, then you're starting to ramp up through the, the way that you design the practice. And again, so what we were talking about before, it does have an effect, I think. And then so you're starting to design the different ways that you're um, onboarding him back up into full team periods, full 11 on 11s. And then really his quote unquote preseason, his most live active work came in those joint practices versus Cincinnati, which it was designed that way when Sean McVay reached out to Zach Taylor in what, February, late February, um, because they knew that they were gonna have to get him some good work against a good defense at that time. And so everyone, you know, I've not heard a ton of concern internally about this. At the same time, you weigh that and you measure that with any time the quarterback's arm is not fully right, you're definitely going to be worried at some point. And I think part of this to me, my sense on this since, you know, March is that they had to control and they wanted to control every single variable they possibly could while they could, because I really do think that this thing is an unknown heading into the, the, the bulk of the season. They don't, they can't know how it'll feel, you know, after a, a week eight game, if he has to throw, you know, 45 times, they can't know that they can't possibly predict that. Um, and, and this is something that is ongoing. So at that point, you have to try to control the plan leading up to that period um, so that when you can't control the variables anymore, you at least have done what you could. And like I said, built that foundation of knowledge. And, and to me, it's always a risk with an injury like this. It's less like, are you concerned he's going to miss time? Probably not. My concern is more when you've got anything physical that's a nagging injury, I think it alters decision-making process. Not not necessarily like conscious thought of, uh-oh, I've got an injury here. i got to get rid of the ball. But just it's there. It's something that your brain is processing while you're supposed to be doing something else. And Stafford is a quarterback that's always had, you know, the tendency to, to kind of have more bad decisions, more bad turnover worthy type plays. This feels like it can only increase that tendency. So with that in mind, what is your bigger concern for the Rams this season? Stafford's elbow, Allen Robinson going completely AWOL in the first game we saw from him or the offensive line getting its ass absolutely handed to it by the Buffalo <laughs> Bills defensive line. Oh man. It's like Sophie's choice over <laughs> here, dude. Like, <laughs> no, I mean, I think, um, well, first of all, I will say um, Matthew Stafford, I did this big study on him entering the Rams and actually one of your interns, Tage Seth helped me with some of the data for it. Um, or previous interns. And he, uh, we, we found like some really remarkable performance after critical error stats. And so that's just Matthew Stafford, right? Yeah. He's just going to be that guy trick shots only as my colleague, Nate Tice likes to say, <laughs> and then, you know, makes up for it in other ways and, and kind of shows up when he needed needs to, regardless of whether his arm is literally detaching with the football as he throws it downfield to probably Cooper cup. If week one could tell us anything. Right. But yeah. I think I worry less about the Allen Robinson stuff. Um, I, I think that scenario was largely dictated by some of his alignment, some of the ways that he was, um, you know, built into Matthew's progressions, some of the, the backside stuff that they always like to get to, they couldn't really get to because of the line. I promise I'm getting to the, my point with this. Um, and a lot of the the zone beating stuff that Cooper Cup is is one of the best receivers in the league at. You know the the Bills stayed in that in that zone. They capped it with a hard cap um, the entire time, and then they sort of were able to cloud what Allen was doing a little bit. And they could only rush four. So again, I don't believe that will be the issue every game. I fully expect from what I saw in camp, this is not the story of Allen Robinson's season after Week One. Um, but <laughs> to my point and to your point, this offensive line, I, that was, 
that was a, 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 yeah, that was not good. That was a disaster. That was an implosion like I didn't expect. And it was historic in the Sean McVay era um, in terms of pressure rate and sacks. And I think that that's the bigger concern because if this offense, so much of it's about timing and concept development and layers and rhythm and movement and what Matthew Stafford can manipulate within that structure. Um, and I think that when you can't do any of that, when all of those tools are taken away and you go it, over the course of like, what, what was it? 2.8 seconds per rush. Um, you go from snap to panic. That's not a good recipe, even for a quarterback who is known to be sort of a, a good post-snap processor as Matthew Stafford is. And so I think that creates such a ripple effect of disaster through every single layer and that's something that they absolutely need to have fixed. Um, usually Sean McVay offenses scheme pretty well around any type of offensive line issues, but you also then need your running backs to step up in that regard. You need your tight ends to step up in that regard without sacrificing pass catching ability. So that's the number one thing that I'm watching over the next couple of weeks is how they solve that and what kind of personnel maybe they they move around, got some injuries up there now. Um, so that's going to be the story of their season, in my opinion. Um, I did see that uh, you tweeted they'd signed Ode Abushi to the practice squad. That's that's a smart contingency play because, I mean, that is a capable starting guard. And if you have a problem with your current starting guards, that's not a bad guy to be able to turn to on the practice squad and potentially, you know, throw in there if you get another game like they had in, in week one where those guys are just getting absolutely destroyed. Yeah, and um, they, they're moving Coleman Shelton to center. He was their backup center last year but can do the job as a starter. And he sort of wrestled away the starting right guard spot. I actually thought he of the disaster that was their offensive line. I thought Coleman Shelton was one of the better players uh, on Thursday night, especially kind of being thrown into that starting position and very tenaciously grabbed a hold of that during camp, uh, despite some competition there. So moving him to center, I think he's a good player to have on the interior, regardless of where he's at. Um, interesting. I'm still working to find this answer. You guys probably have a study on this, but he's a lefty snapper. So I'm kind of curious, you know, cause Matthew likes to be in the gun so much. I'm kind of curious, like, do your head, does your head tilt a little bit when you're getting the right. snap, when you're in gun and you're going with the lefty instead of, I don't know. I'm sure there's something there, something very, very like minute that's there, some detail, but I do think Coleman's a good, uh, if you're going to be missing your starting center and Brian Allen, Coleman Shelton, I do think is a good person to have in that spot. And, you know, O'Day, despite coming back from that ACL, um, if he's healthy, I think he's somebody who you can expect to really compete for a position, especially with other guys sort of recovering from various bumps and bruises. So one of the things we want to do when we're talking to people on our Wednesday show is get a little bit of a look ahead at the Thursday game, which we kind of miss out in our preview type process um, on our Thursday show. So this week, Thursday Night Football, is the Chargers at the Chiefs, Herbert, Mahomes. What is your just high-level take? How do you think that game's going to go? Who do you like in the game? I think right now it's the Chiefs are four-point favorites, if I remember that line correctly. Yeah. Well, you wanted a high-level take, so my opinion is that it's like going to be if you have ever considered what it would be like if you went down – a roller coaster, but you didn't put the crossbar down in front of you before you started going down the down the slope. Uh, that's what I feel like watching this game will feel like just to the casual uh, casual sports observer. Um, these are two really special teams, really special quarterbacks. Brandon Staley's defense, I think they were trying some things against the, the Chiefs last year that were effective that now than other teams with that some of that too high, some of that stuff. 
other teams started trying to play Pat Mahomes in that way. And I think that's going to be interesting because you know that Andy Reid and Patrick Mahomes have sort of troubleshot that as much as they could this offseason. Probably will unroll some some different things. And then on the other side, I mean, it is so much fun watching Justin Herbert play. Um, this is a shout out to Seth Galina. Um, I think that he, like, Justin is going to be, between these two quarterbacks, the future is is so bright in the NFL at the position. And I think just unfolding Justin a little bit more. He, I think, is capable of being that high-octane passer. And you see flashes of it. You see, like, what, five shots, five shots he takes per game that you don't understand how space and time unfold in that way. And so I think that if you can sort of bottle that and efficiently uh, use that to push the ball down the field, maybe on those early downs a little bit more, um, I think that's going to be really special to watch. So we need a pick from you because we're going to keep track of oh. all these and see if we are dumber or smarter than the guests we get on the show. So you're the first I, one up. I think I'm going to go with Chiefs, not because I necessarily think that it's how it's going to go, but I feel like that's a safer pick considering <laughs> uh, the can the can that they opened on Arizona the other day. Yeah, absolutely. And then the last thing I have to ask you, I'm contractually obliged. Bobby Wagner has now ghosted us for an interview twice, so we're wondering if you have an in there, like if we could we could work you and try and get the Bobby Wagner interview that we've been. It's literally been on our our production prep sheet for the podcast for about two years now. Uh, you're putting a lot of pressure on me, um, but Bobby Wagner, I got to tell you, I, I was texting one of my colleagues, Michael Sean Dugar in Seattle, um, who covered him for years. And I told him, you know, after locker room the other day, when Bobby was kind enough to take some extra time to to go through some of the, the toss concepts that the Bills were running, that the 49ers also ran against the Rams, but didn't quite work so well against Bobby Wagner. Um, you know, it, it's, it, it was feeling like be, covering a Sean McVay team you get a certain level of education in football, right? You, if, as long as you're open to the learning process, which I very much am. And then Bobby Wagner comes in and you feel like, okay, now I'm going to, going on to like my graduate courses and my PhD. So I texted Michael Sean Dugar and I was like, I'm going to learn so much this year, selfishly speaking, like that dude's amazing. <laughs> yeah. No, we've heard that. We just haven't been able to actually get him on the show and prove it. So, well, good luck to you. <laughs> thank, thank you. Um, Jordan, thanks so much for, for talking to us. I would encourage everybody to follow you on Twitter and to start reading your work at The Athletic. You've got some awesome stuff there. You've been a great guest. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Appreciate you guys' work and um, all the help that you guys do, and especially that publicly available data um, that you guys always are, are so helpful with. I learn a lot from you guys earnestly, seriously. So thanks for what you do as well. Thank you. All right, that great job, Sam. Good, uh, good interview. Thank you to Jordan. That was fantastic. She does. Um, I think she does a great job. She asks really good questions. Um, even just that that last Bobby Wagner piece. Even though she said she was not going to help us, essentially, yeah. Yeah. Uh, the fact that she sits there and asks about the route concepts the Bills ran. Uh, you know that that is that is some really good stuff. She's written some very unique pieces. Uh, I know he's been not very, just unique pieces uh, at the athletic over the last couple of years. So do like reading Jordan's work. I think she's got some, some excellent insight on the Rams. I mean, my big takeaway is that the Rams are long-term focused and that they're not going to panic after week one. Uh, Even it was the bills too. I mean, it's the bills. It's maybe the best team in the NFL that they lost to, but they're going to stick to their guns and stick to their process uh that seems to be my biggest takeaway is they have a plan and you know they're gonna 
offensive line aside, they, I think, have a plan for uh, for getting better and improving here in the in the coming weeks. Yeah, and, and emphasizing, you know, just how in control they are with the sports science stuff and the medical stuff and this idea of they've been one of the most we, – we talk about injury luck, you know. I think the Rams are proving for the last few years that it isn't just luck. You know, they're, they're, you can control this stuff to a degree. Obviously, you're never going to be able to pre- prevent any and all injuries – but you can absolutely evidently move the needle in terms of how much your team is going to get injured or not. And the Rams seem to be at the forefront of understanding that and moving it in their direction, which only aids this stars and scrubs approach that we've talked about. That's the interesting one is because I think there are people across the league who are trying to, they're wondering what are the Rams doing? How can we do that? And then there's others who are still skeptical um, who don't know if, if, if it is anything that they're truly doing that is, that is special, but um, it's my feeling is it's probably a whole bunch of little things that they're doing that add up to the, you know, to the, to the whole of, of, of staying healthy over these last couple of years. We'll see if they can keep that up. Yep. So we got one last email and then we will uh, wrap it up for the show. This one is from Cole Rainey. Uh, again, these have been edited for brevity. Um, hi, Sam and Steve. I know you've talked a lot about Tyreek Hill this off season, but here's my question. If the Chiefs received a lot of too high safety looks from opposing defenses because of Tyreek Hill and not Mahomes, do you expect Miami's offense this year will receive the same kind of treatment? So I think there's two elements to this. There's the, the Miami part of it, and then there's also what Tyreek Hill leaving does to the Chiefs offense. Yeah, I mean, we already saw some of it in week one. I don't think the I don't know about the Cardinals game plan, man. I, I, I think when you look at them blitzing like crazy, I, Mahomes has been so good uh, against the blitz. It, and you know how you know, when you watch games sometimes, it feels like either defenses are only playing with nine players or it feels like offenses are playing with like 13 players. Like there's always just space and people open and all that. It was kind of both on Sunday. The Chiefs just feel like there's always space being created in their offense. So when you blitz them, Mahomes is so good at recognizing and getting the ball to the to the players in space, and that that won't change without Tyreek Hill. the 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 aspect of the too high stuff, I think it was the combination of Mahomes and Tyreek Hill that led to that, because you knew that Mahomes was going to take those shots, and you knew that Mahomes will hit those shots down the field to Tyreek Hill. In Miami, you're probably not scared of that yet until Tua starts hitting those consistently. Right, if Tua starts hitting one a day, one a game of Tyree Kill behind the defense, then teams will start playing too high. Right, that's what they'll do. Uh, but for now, I think you know people Tua generally works the underneath stuff, and he does it pretty well. And you're gonna you're trying to take that away by playing more single high and, and discouraging the short stuff against Miami. Yeah, for for his career, blitzing Patrick Mahomes has resulted in. A passer rating of 120, 8.7 yards per attempt, uh, an EPA per play of essentially 0.4, which is monstrous, Um, 55 touchdowns to seven interceptions. He has a turnover-worthy play rate of 1.9%, which is basically the the best number in the league any given year. Um, It's suicide. it's, It's absolutely dumb. It's ridiculous. He has proven over his entire NFL career that he will carve the blitz to ribbons. So, of course, the Cardinals come into week one with the dedicated game plan of blitzing the ever-living crap out of him and seeing what happens. And what happened I mean, was the box I, score number of five touchdowns and, you know, huge production and blah, blah, blah. 
it's one of those things defensive coordinators deal with this you know do, do we do what we do or do we attack weaknesses and I, I think there's certain times when the weaknesses or strengths of a team are so great that it has to outweigh what you do and what you feel good about and what you what yeah. what you're comfortable with and, and the bills did that week one the bills don't like to blitz a lot anyway but they went to the extreme and said look matthew stafford crushed the blitz last year and he was great and empty against the blitz you give the ram space and stafford's finding it we're not even going to try that so it, it kind of played into the bills game plan anyway but they did take it to extreme measures they just didn't blitz right they said we're going to rush four and we trust our front four but we're not even going to try to blitz we're not going to do it uh the cardinals don't have the front four so i get it you know jj watts hurt and they don't have anybody that you can trust at the same time, there's probably this element to just like let Mahomes hold the ball in the pocket and and let him let him take the underneath stuff over and over and over again. You don't have to blitz just because you don't have rushers. I, I don't know if that's the best strategy, and clearly it, it did not work very well for the Cardinals against the Chiefs. Yeah, I think ultimately you make a you make a move like that, and by what I'm talking about is the defensive looks of two high safeties and all those kinds of things. You do that not just because of one player, you do it because of the connection, the the, the pairing of Mahomes to Tyreek Hill. I, I don't know that Tyreek Hill on his own would cause you to go to all those types of defenses unless he had a quarterback capable of taking advantage of it. Clearly, that was the case for Kansas City. The Mahomes to Tyreek Hill connection was incredible. Teams went to that look, and then all of a sudden it became apparent that that was actually causing Kansas City some problems, and that is the quote-unquote blueprint to at least slow them down or cause them discomfort, or it's basically the best you can do. Um, and I think because of that, it will continue even absent Tyreek Hill, other than, you know, the Cardinals, who just showed why it will continue. Like, any smart team is going to look at what the Cardinals did this week, they're going to look at what the Raiders did twice last year, and they're going to say, okay, he might carve it up anyway, but the two high looks is the way we attack Kansas City. Now, I expect... Thursday night football to look completely different yes. from a game standpoint. Not that the Chiefs can't have success. Not that Mahomes can't have a, a, a big game statistically or whatever it might be. It's just going to look different. The but, Chargers yeah. will have a different game plan. That will at and least I'll, be a strategy. I'll, and I'll say this like 20 times between now and the end of our review show tomorrow. There's Week one and week two is just different. It's different matchups, different home teams and away teams. And so you can't. That's that's part of the reason why you don't overreact to week one. Just because the matchups are different. The schemes are different. The te teams are in different locations, all of that stuff. Um, so I expect a completely different game with the Chargers and the Chiefs. But I think Miami has to earn it, right? I mean, they have to earn the two high looks. The other difference there is Miami has a different system. They want yes. to run to set up the pass, right? The the Chiefs want to pass to set up the run. And they're so dangerous passing the ball at all levels. Teams want to just flood coverage. You know, they want to flood coverage first. Whereas Mike McDaniel and everybody on the Shanahan tree wants to run the ball. And so you're almost obligated to play more single high because you have to respect the run, not because they're better, but because you know they're going to do it more often, say in Miami, than they will in Kansas City. That, I think, is a huge point, is that, okay, yes, you've got Tyree Kill, but teams aren't going to start doing it unless Tua shows that he can connect with Tyree Kill on those deep passes. But where Miami has a real extra thing in in their favor that the Chiefs didn't necessarily have is that offense because it's not just a you know the the trade-off of playing two high safeties is you take a guy out of the box and you're lighter against the run and you are more vulnerable to those underneath things so 
Miami is essentially running the Shanahan system, which is already stressing teams from a defending the run standpoint and from all the things they do in that regard. They, they attack that stuff a lot more than the Chiefs do. So immediately your, your default position is going to be wanting that extra guy in the box and having a single high safety, not two. So I think teams are already going to be erring on the side of, look, we'll put two high safeties back when we have to. But right now, the biggest problem is stopping all the underneath stuff, defending the run, being gap sound on on those plays. And then, okay, if we get forced out of that by Tua hitting Tyreek deep all the time, that's when we'll make the adjustment. So I don't think that they're going to – I don't think Tyreek Hill just on his own being added to this offense is going to cause teams defending the Dolphins the way they defended Chiefs last year. All right, good answer, Sam. That's what uh... – it was a good question too. I love the questions. Uh, remember, we'll we'll try to answer those questions. They're going to be the uh, the foundation for our Wednesday show. So keep those coming. Uh, NFL podcast at pff.com. And uh, yes, again, appreciate Jordan for coming by and discussing the Rams and giving her pick. Was she picking against the spread there, Sam? Uh, I gave we her the line. Was, I think right? I think we should just hold her to something and see what happens from it. So. Yeah, she went Kansas City. Yeah. We'll say that's against the spread. We'll give her the Chiefs minus four. What are you picking? Oh, we got to do the picks right now, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, I'll take the Chargers. I'll take the Chargers to bounce back okay. as uh, as home underdogs here, and um, I think it'll be another good close game. Remember, they 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 played they played some tight ones last season. They did. They did play some tight ones. I am going to go with the Chiefs, um, even on the road. No, wait, it's. It's at home, right? It's Arrowhead. Oh, is it? In, is it in Kansas City? Yeah, it is. My fault. Arrowhead. So home. Yeah, Chiefs. Chiefs cover. They cover four. They take that back. Chargers they... road dogs. <laughs> uh, I'll take the Chargers. But yeah, that's why it's four. Um, yeah, I'll stick with that. Chargers keeping it close there. All right. Sound good. There, picks are in. All right. Well, that's a wrap for the Wednesday show. We'll be back again tomorrow, the Thursday preview show, previewing all of the week two. NFL action. Thanks to everybody for tuning in. We'll see you tomorrow.